Hey there, what's up everybody? Welcome to Evoke Greatness. This podcast was created for those of you who, like me, are driven by their curious nature and fascination with the champion mindset. If you have an insatiable hunger for growth and knowledge, or maybe you're just curious on how some of the most successful people have navigated their journey, we share the ups and the downs, the highs and the lows, and all the lessons learned along the way. It doesn't matter what chapter you are on in your story. Maybe you're just getting started, or heck, maybe you're halfway through. What I know is where intention goes, energy flows. It's my most sincere hope that you will hear something in one or maybe many of these episodes that resonates with you and reminds you that you are not in this alone. As we venture into year two, I hope that you find a sense of connection and community when you're here because we all deserve a place where we belong. My name is Sunny, and I am so glad you're here. If you're new, there's a few things you want to know about me. I am a huge book nerd and a wee bit of a control enthusiast with an obsession for motivational coffee cups. I believe that a rising tide raises all ships, and I invite you along in this journey to evoke greatness. Welcome back to another episode of Evoke Greatness. I cannot begin to tell you how excited I am about our guest today. She is a thought leader and one of New York's most influential women. She has raised over a billion, yes, B, capital B, billion dollars for nonprofits globally in her 20-plus year career at the world-famous Christie's Auction House in New York, where she continues to serve as an ambassador. She is also a keynote speaker. She's the author of the book, The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You where she shares her own story that will help people unlock their sales potential and empower women in the workplace. Lydia Finette, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, anybody who is in this audience knows I am an absolute bookworm when it comes to just bubbling up people's stories. And you have one for the books, for sure. So I would love for you to just give a little background on, you know, maybe even an overview, because the book really goes through your entire story, and I've got some pinpointed questions there, but give a little bit of an overview as to highlights of your career and, and kind of what phase you're in now. Well, first and foremost, I love the name of your podcast because I believe that we all have greatness within us. So I love to be here. I love to be inspiring people and talking about my journey because it's a journey that I think any person who is any aspiration in life to do something larger than what they know should go after it. And I hope that I am the person who shows you that that is possible. I grew up in a very small town in Louisiana. I had never heard of Christie's Auction House growing up. My parents were not art collectors. And I read an article in Vanity Fair magazine when I was in college about this mythical place called Christie's Auction House where they were selling Princess Diana's dresses. And it was all being done for charity. And there would be an a world-famous auctioneer presiding over this incredible sale. And it really detailed what it was like to be in the sale room that night with gentlemen in black tie and the women in evening gowns. And I wish that I could, I wish I could pretend that there was more to the story than that just capturing my imagination. Sure. But there was something about the glamour. There was something about this world that I'd never heard of and knew nothing about. And I became obsessed with working for Christie's. And there are a series of different events, which you can read about in my book. I got an internship there by sheer force of will and <laughs> calling the same internship coordinator enough that she finally relented but got my foot in the door when I was in college and never let my foot get out of that door and have been with the company, as you said, for over 20 years. I'm now an ambassador for the company and I specialize in auctioneering. So the story of my book is really how I became an auctioneer, which was not when I first started something that women did. It was really run by the guys. And that's what I had seen growing up. I think there were one or two women who were auctioneers at that point, but it really wasn't more than that. And it really became a story of finding my voice and finding a voice that was just as strong as the guys that I worked with and equally as good, not better or worse, just different, which is what I like to say about going for things in life. It doesn't have to be done the way that it's been done. So to evoke greatness, I believe that you have to really dig deep and find out what it looks like for you and then use your own voice to get what you want out of life. That's amazing. And, and you talked about persistence and 
you getting in your foot in the door was not an easy feat. And, and that took multiple calls. And really, it was not being willing to accept no for an answer. You were going right. to find a way. You were going to get creative and work around it, which eventually you did and, and became an intern there. Ended up going back after finishing, finishing your senior year in college, went back for a paid role. Uh, but really, that's where you were starting to get your feet wet. I love in the book when you talk about what you saw those auctioneers, because you were, you were eyes and ears in the rooms. You got to see that firsthand from kind of being within the house versus outside of the house. And Absolutely. you talk a lot about the, the British man, right? And that really being kind of the face of what the auctioneers typically looked like, sounded like. When you went in for the tryout for an auctioneer position, when they decided to open it up to the entire company versus just previously the history of the company, they'd only allowed officers to try out for, this, for these positions. And so you clearly knocked it out of the park. You got your role, but you, you really created something. You trademarked something that is very significant in your book, and that is your strike method. And your trademark move at the beginning of an auction is banging that gavel on, on whatever hard surface is available, and you really Whatever's do there. that. That's right. To command the attention of the room. And so I, I love this because I think anybody, the gavel is your, that's your trademark, but anybody can create a strike method for themselves. And so why do you think that's important for women to really create that for themselves? A lot of times we go into opportunities where we're excited about something or nervous, or we're being put into a position that feels very uncomfortable. And instead of preparing ourselves, we prepare the words, we prepare what we think we're going to do, really not thinking about what it's going to do to our bodies when we get out there. And I started the first chapter of my book, trying to bring the reader into those moments before I go on stage. So the first words are, Lydia, you're on in 10 seconds. And I talk to the reader about what it's like to be backstage, looking out into a completely black room with all I can see are eyes watching a video or listening to a speaker. And I'm about to transition this moment, this sort of impactful moment where the nonprofit is trying to tell everyone in the audience what they're doing and spin it around and make it into this high energy moment. And so when I first started taking auctions, I didn't even really realize that I was doing it, but I would go out and because again, there are anywhere from 500 to 1,000 people sitting in that audience. Right. And I would slam down my gavel three times. It wasn't something that anyone else did. It was just something that I did. And especially at times when they didn't have the video before and I just had to go out there and get the attention, it just became something that I did every single time. And I had a guy sitting next to me at, table, at a table one night who said, you know, you should really patent that uh, <laughs> gavel strike because everybody knows you're coming out when, when you hit that gavel because it's so hard. And I've certainly broken gavels before. I've certainly cracked podiums with it. But that to me is the moment where I say to the audience, okay, guys, get ready. You're in for a show. So make no mistake about it. You may be talking now, but you will not be talking while I'm up here. And there was something about that that felt so strong and powerful that I really tried to figure out a way to bring that into any kind of public speaking that I did. Or anytime I had a difficult conversation, to think instead of just rushing in there and turning red and getting flustered because I didn't know what I was going to say, what was my strike method? Was it going to be something physical? You can't bring a gavel in anywhere. But if I was sitting at a table, could I tap the bottom of the table three times? Was there something that I could do with that sort of one, two, three that made me feel like I was strong and powerful the same way that gavel strike would, was going to work? And I told that to friends over the years about the gavel strike. And eventually it sort of became known as the strike method. A friend would say, oh, I tapped the bottom of the table three times as if to say, here we go. Or I have a friend who has a red pebble that she strokes before she goes into a meeting with her thumb. And again, it's almost like a feather for Dumbo. You don't need it, but it gives you that concentration and that focus so that you can walk out into a meeting or into a difficult conversation, or frankly, onto a stage in front of a thousand people feeling like everyone there should know that you're there. And then you're going to follow it up with something that you are ready to say because you feel strong and powerful and ready to jump into that conversation. 
I absolutely love that. And and everyone, you can individualize that. That's the beauty of it, right? And it doesn't have to be this outward method. It can be something almost that's a personal thing that you do. And so I love that somebody can take that and yet still grab a hold of the power in the room and go out feeling really confident to whatever, whether it's a meeting or speaking in front of 5,000 people. I really right. love kind of the permission that that gives someone to, all right, get your shoulders back. Let's go, girl. <laughs> Oh, here you go. Because there is something so unnerving, especially when you're doing something that feels outside of your comfort zone. Right. And I've seen so many people cave to that so quickly because they haven't thought through what comes next. You know, they, they think about their opening words and then it all starts to tumble. And so I say to people too, you know, if you have that strike method and you're feeling powerful, then memorize the next words coming out of your mouth. Think right. about what you're going to say next right. and don't just leave it to chance because frankly, that's when things, that's when things really start to fall apart. Absolutely. I think stories lay the foundation uh, in our interactions and in our relationships, but especially when it comes to a lot of what you talk about, which is making that sale Mm -hmm. and it's, it's being authentic and relatable and, and having that sense of someone else being able to resonate with your story. And you do that so eloquently in the book, especially the audio version of that, because it I'm somebody who's a visual reader. And so when I'm reading it or when I'm listening to it, I can see it playing out in my mind, almost like a movie. And so you share so many of the of the mishaps, the things that went wrong, the times that the gavel had broke off. How do you think that has progressed in your relatability? with your audience, whether that be an audience as your keynote speaking or sitting in front of 5,000 people in front of an auction? I think it is the difference between somebody who is a talented public speaker and someone who is a speaker. Because what you realize, even as an auctioneer, and what I realized after many, many failed auctions on stage or moments of just wanting to crawl underneath the stage because no one was listening to me and I was on stage for an hour and I couldn't believe that not one time did people stop talking over the course of the hour. I realized I wasn't making an impact because I was treating everybody like it was I was on stage and they were somewhere far, far away and I was talking to them. When in fact, Anything that's happening in a room, everybody can see. So if a phone rings and I'm in the middle of the talk, why not mention that? Or if someone yawns in the front, why not make a joke about it? You know, maybe something like, next time I'll be sure to dance. I can see, sir, that I'm not entertaining enough for you tonight. These are things I learned on stage as the auctioneer. And I realized that the audience, instead of just staring at me blankly, kind of sat up in their chair as if to say like, am I the next person she's going to say something to? And I've realized that with public speaking and, you know, I do a ton of, of keynote speaking and I've heard that feedback a lot. It was really fun because she included the audience. Right. I think people think that speakers need to be up there just speaking at you when in fact, that's not really the world we live in anymore. We live in a much more casual environment where it's fine to break down that wall and to be relatable because if somebody feels that one one thread that they can relate to over the course of a book or a speech or whatever it is, they'll feel more connected to you for the rest of your career. And if you're someone who's looking to make any kind of difference in your career, you want people to not feel like you're unapproachable, but rather to feel as you did that you can reach out over LinkedIn and the person will respond because that's authentically who they are. Absolutely. Well, and I think you have a great boundary on relatability, yet maintaining the power. And you tell an incredible story. You have lots of celebrities that would come up on stage with with you. And you had Matt Damon, who was planned to come up. And he, he ends up calling you by the wrong name. He ends up kind of heckling a little bit from the audience. And you thought in that moment, okay, I can either let this go and it not be a big deal and play along as if my name is Lindsay, or I can, you know, mentally strike my gavel and create a boundary here. And what was that like in the moment? And and how can that be related to just even the boundaries in the office, in the workplace? Well, I think that the interesting part about that story, which was my friend's favorite cocktail party story. So everyone asked if I could please put it in the book because I was writing it. Please put the Matt Damon story in the book. Was that we've all been in a situation like that over the course of our lives or our careers. There's someone we perceive to be miles and leaps and bounds ahead of us, whether corporately or socially, or in this case, an international celebrity. 
But what I've learned being on stage in front of international celebrities and CEOs and titans of industry is that we're all the same. And if you treat somebody the same, then they will react in the same way. And so I had met Matt when I sat down at that dinner that night. I knew he would not remember me from Adam because, you know, I can't even imagine how many people he meets over sure. the course of his life and everyone to them. It's the moment they met Matt Damon. And to him, it's this person with brown hair who seated across <laughs> from, from dinner. I mean, that's, that is the nature of his life. And, and you have to respect that as well. But when I got on stage and then they got in, he got into a bidding war with someone else and he said, Hey, Lindsay, Lindsay, you should double the lot. And I'm staring out into an audience of probably, you know, let's call it five to 600 people. And I probably knew 50 to a hundred of them because these were people in New York who I'd known for a long time who'd asked me to take this auction. And I had that, that split second moment where I sort of said, I mean, I, I guess I could be Lindsay and just change my name. And maybe that becomes the joke, but also I'm the auctioneer. This is my job. It, he's not going to care. He, he called me the wrong name. It's not, this is on me. This is on him. And sure enough, I said, as, as I said, I can only double the lot. One. I mean, I, I can't double the lot because I only have one to sell, but more importantly, my name is Lydia. And he started laughing and sort of threw his hands into his, his head into his hands. And then when he came up on stage, he then immediately made a joke about it. The fact that he liked to call me Lindsay. And this was like a, a long history that we had to which I replied, there is no history. I just met you. And, and they told me, <laughs> was a struggling actor named Mike Diamond coming in from Long Island. So I guess that's you or a dentist. And the most amazing part about the story is I didn't even tell the second part of the story in the book that he had a child at another school in Manhattan that year. And I went to take that auction and they told me that he was going to be there. And I got, he was only supposed to be there at the very beginning and then leave. And I usually go on towards the end of the night and he got up and introduced himself and introduced the school and everything and saw me backstage and said, Lydia, Lydia, it's Matt. <laughs> as if I didn't know who he right. was. It was always the hilarious part. And I acted very nonchalant as I often do. <laughs> and I, which is the only way, like a, like a teenager. I was like, I don't know who you are. And um, I got back on stage that night. And as I was on stage, I heard the crowd, this was at Lincoln Center, sort of roar. And I just assumed that I was doing a fantastic job. And I didn't realize that Matt had actually picked up a microphone backstage and came strolling on the stage behind me. And he said, hey, Lindsay. And I started laughing. I said, nobody here knows what that means. So then we had to explain to the audience that he called me Lindsay, but all on his own. You know, he has a great sense of right. humor. And that, to me, again, articulated this point that, you know, we all think, oh, God, this person... Humor is a sense. A sense of humor is a sense of humor, and right. if it's funny, it's funny. Right. So I just think that that to me, I that's the second part of that story, which I never got into in the book, but it just was another lesson to me in life to just treat everyone the same and be yourself and show up as yourself because people respect that. Yeah, one hundred percent. I love that story though, but I I really I, the the story itself is funny, right? You almost feel like listening to or being an observer of it, like oh my gosh, it's one of those moments you could just kind of cringe in. But you you didn't. You chose to grab a hold of it, and and I love that piece of it because again, relatable to something in the office, something with your boss, something at a at a you know large presentation or meeting that you really can. It gives people again the permission to say, mm, no, I can go ahead and take the power here. Absolutely. And you always can. And that is the point. And if you are in an office and you walk into your CEO and you just happen to be in the snack area and they happen to be there too, and you are an assistant, don't squander the time. Don't right. hide behind the fact that you're young or, or you don't know this person. Take that moment to introduce yourself because people remember that. You know, I've, I've worked in the working world for over two decades and I still have interns that I remember who put their hand out, who went the extra mile. And there's still people who I support in their career. And over the course of my career, there's one in particular who, when my book came out, hosted a book signing for me and put me in touch with the president of Barnard College, which is the place that she'd gone to school so that she could do a case study in my book. I mean, life is about networking and that network is in every direction throughout the course of your life. So Take every opportunity, no matter where someone is or where you are in your life. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you talk a lot about kind of that compensation negotiation topic, which is sometimes that topic that people have a really difficult time not only talking about, but really going in and making the ask for. I would love for you to share, as you articulated so well, around the fact that you you came to a place where you realized your comp was not 
at, at an equitable place compared with everyone else. And it was actually someone internally who made you aware of that. Mm-hmm. And you decided, hey, I may interview elsewhere and kind of see what, el- what else is out there in the world. Would you share the story of really deciding, hey, I feel like it would be a really wise move for Christie's to create this the uh, department that doesn't yet exist today and walk through that story and what your ask was when it came down to the nitty gritty negotiation topic. So essentially, as you alluded to, I had been working at the company when this all sort of happened for about a decade. And the catalyst for this was I was at a brunch with a bunch of my friends. I was 30 years old. I was not married. I was living with a roommate. Um, and I was at brunch with a bunch of friends. And one of our friends said, you guys, I'm so excited. I just got it. I just bought an apartment. And I was so floored by this announcement because, I mean, every month I was sort of like, am I going to make rent this month? I'm really keeping my fingers crossed that I don't have to eat hot dogs off the street for another 30 (laughs) days. I mean, it was really like there was not a lot of there was not a lot of income and there was not a lot of money after rent was paid. So that was a real question I'd been asking. So I couldn't even understand how in a similar job, she had been able to save enough to buy an apartment. This just, it was so beyond my realm of comprehension. And I kind of dug into that a little bit more. I found out how much she was making. And then I started really asking questions with other friends to find out what they were making. And at the same time, Christie's had a new head of HR who had just started. And we had a meeting with our team. And even before the meeting with him, I realized that like I had actually started looking elsewhere for other positions just to even understand what the comp looked like. And I was I was getting the sense very quickly how badly I had been underpaid and it wasn't even half. It was a third of what most of the people on the open market have been making. And by the way, that's not over one year, that's over a decade. So if you just think about the amount of money I'd left on the table time and time again, anytime I really talked about money with anyone, I was often told so many people would love to have your job. You're so lucky to work here. Yes, all of those things were true. No question. There were a line of women and men out of the out of the block who would have taken my job, still would. But that wasn't the point. I was doing the job and I deserved to be compensated. And I should not have repeatedly been told that. Ultimately, the, the decision you make about whether or not to stay should not be based on whether or not other people want your job. It should be based on if you're doing a good job and the company wants to keep you, will they keep paying you more, right? right. You have to have those questions and you have to have those conversations to know the answer to that. So the head of our HR pulled me aside, the new head of HR, and said, you know, I don't know if you know this or not, but you are wildly underpaid. And I... I think more than anything, and one of the greatest lessons I learned that I've really carried through my entire career is that you work for a company. You don't work for a person. And a company can change the rules at any point. You know, a new CEO can come in and fire everyone at the top. I've definitely seen that happen. Um, there can be a shift in you know, the strategy of the company and people can be let go. A company does not love you and you do not love a company back. So the onus is always on you to be asking for increases in salary when they are deserved. And it is not to say they always are deserved, but you have to ask the question. And when I found that out, I felt really... I felt gutted because I thought, because I loved the company so much that the company loved me back. And I thought of the company as a family and therefore the company would be taking care of me. However, I learned in that day and in that week that none of that was true. And I ended up going to my boss at the time who I adored. I had worked with him for a long time and he was a wonderful man, a wonderful mentor. I still really respect him, but had definitely told me many times that I should not be asking for more money, that I should be happy to have what I had. And I went into his office and I don't even really think that day that I planned to tell him that I was leaving, but I was so upset about the fact that I wasn't making that amount of money that the words kind of came tumbling out of my mouth that I was leaving. I was giving two weeks, like this was it. And I was leaving. And the other part about this entire story that did work and what I would always recommend and recommend before you walk into anyone's office to tell them you're leaving is that I already thought through what I wanted to do for the company. And I had noticed during this, at this point, it was the recession of sort of 2008. I had noticed that we'd been able to make a small income stream, whereas in events, you're usually taking money away by getting things sponsored. So not only were we not spending any of the money that had been allotted for our department that year, instead of firing anyone, we'd been able to shore up using sponsorship and even made a profit against RPL. So 
for me in that moment, it just became this moment to throw it all out there because the words that he said when I told him I was leaving were, what would it take to make you stay? And because I was already upset about the money, I wasn't planning to leave. So I had leverage. I also had an idea for what I wanted to do if I did stay, um, which I was going to. So I figured you might as well just throw it out there and see. And I did. And it worked. And not only did I end up getting what I wanted, which was three times what I was making, which was putting me back to market rate at that point, but I also got this new job and job title for strategic partnerships, which was a department that I ran until January of this past year. So it really, for me, articulated the most important lesson when it comes to negotiation, which is always you have to ask. And I don't really feel anything but happiness anytime I go into a comp negotiation, even if I don't end up getting what I want, because at least I asked the question. And I've definitely been in situations where I've thrown out a number that is wildly, wildly too much and been told that. And you have to accept that and move on, or you don't move on and you just leave. And that is, again, a conversation that you can have with the people you're working with, or even frankly, just with yourself, if you know what it's going to take for you to be happy where you are. But I never regret asking for more because a lot of times it's yielded the answers and the results that I've wanted. Right, right. And and one, you went in, you had this ask, you knew ahead of time, you had done your homework on it. But then initially they had tried to say, well, we'll give you all that you're asking for. You're basically going to get all you're asking for except the title. And once right. you yeah. go get your first a global account or international account, then we'll give you the title. And you flat out said, without number one, there's not going to be a number two. Without number one, there is no number two. And it slid the paper back across the table. Yep. And there was, I, I think I let out an audible gasp of like, yes. <laughs> I know. You go for broke sometimes. Right. And it's also... It's interesting because I feel like in this day and age, especially this is a conversation I hear with a lot of the people who I'm friends with and I'm in my early 40s. So there are definitely people who've been in their careers for a long time. And this COVID shift has been very interesting in terms of comp. And you have people coming in demanding the moon and stars right. with nothing to show for it. And I like to make the distinction because I think it's important for people to also hear this. You also have to do the work to get the to get rewards as well. You don't walk in the door and get paid for doing the job that you were hired to do. You walk in and you do the job that you were hired to do and you start doing more and that's how you get promoted and that's how you get paid more. So make sure that you were going in there and negotiating as hard as you can for that initial ask, but then don't be the person who just walks in year after year having not done anything more than what is in your job description and say like, it's time for more. It's like, what are you doing? to go above and beyond? And why do you deserve that promotion? And that was something that was said to me over the course of my career, which I really took to heart. What is it that you're not, what are you checking off the box in the job description and then adding to the bottom to get to that next level? And that's what you need to be thinking about. But also I think good management comes in there too, because you know if you have a good boss or you're in a position where you're in a constant dialogue with the person who is your leader or your manager, you should understand what that looks like. And if comp is not going to be there, is there somewhere else you can stretch in the company to find a new place for yourself, to chart a new path for yourself? And that's the world that we live in now. So go in into your job, do a good job, be a hard worker if that's where you want to be. And then think about what that next step looks like for you, because companies don't, don't always do a great job of knowing you as well as you know yourself. So make sure you know what you want and chart that path for yourself. Yeah. And I think women have a tendency, I know I've, I've fallen to be guilty of this, is women have a tendency to be loyal, oh, really, yeah. really loyal to organizations. And that is really beneficial for organizations. But typically what happens is they end up stuck in their career because they feel like everyone should know this amazing job that I've been doing right? I mean, I don't want to brag on myself, but everybody should know. And I, and, the, and these promotions or these raises, those, those are the right things. They should be coming my way. And so it, it has a tendency to get people stuck. And you talked a bit about having the leadership lens of delivering hard feedback and about you know whether it be a promotion that someone is seeking out or compensation. And so how do you approach those conversations when you're giving the direction to someone who reports to you on maybe they, you know, they're coming in to your point, at, they may come in every year and ask, but giving them the feedback, both positive, but also giving them the feedback of, hey, if this is where you want to get, you know, you're going to have to do X, Y, and Z. I think there is nothing more important as a manager or as a leader 
than honesty about someone's career. It is especially a female trait, I believe, to want to be liked. So as a leader, that becomes a really difficult thing because you want to be liked. And yet at the same time, maybe someone's not doing what they're supposed to be doing. So how do you marry those two things? I don't see a lot of reason for negative feedback. That that was never the way that I was as a boss. It's not negative feedback if it's true. Negative feedback is something that can be mean or said because you're not being honest. I think as a leader, it's your onus is to see what someone is good at and to encourage those things to help them think through what those next steps might look like for them, but not to lie if they aren't doing a good job because that doesn't help them at all. I had a woman who worked for me for many years who came in and we were talking during her performance review and she told me that her desire was to be a director in the department. And I I absolutely loved her. I love her still. I never saw that as the next role for her. And we had that conversation and it was really hard. It was hard for her. I felt horrible saying it because I knew that ultimately it meant that she would leave, Mm -hmm. but I didn't see that role for her. And I didn't want to keep her in this role where she was going to hit the ceiling time and time again. I would have kept her in that role forever, but the, the, the things that I needed for her in that director position just did not exist. And so years later, not even, I I guess she probably left within a year to take this other job, um, which she has absolutely thrived in and killed and done an incredible job and moved across the country to take the role. And I could not be prouder of her. And I was so sad when she left because I did not want her to leave, but it was the right call. And that's what leadership's about. Leadership is about being honest with people about where they're going to go in their career and if it's going to be with you. And if it's not also helping them find the next step, it never has to be acrimonious. And I've seen so many people burn bridges over the years with people that didn't need to be burned. Those are frank conversations that you can have. People are grownups. It isn't always comfortable, but ultimately it yields a positive outcome, which is what you want as a leader. Have you always been as kind of tenacious and and, uh, having the ability to persevere? Is that even like as a childhood trait? Has that always followed you? I've always been a tenacious person. Yes. And I, I... I'm sure if you follow me on Instagram, you would know my family was in a pretty horrendous car accident last year and I, you know, fractured my spine and I broke seven ribs and my entire family was in this accident. So there was not only my bodily injury, but then having to heal the family. And I had a number of friends who came to visit in the hospital and one of them called another friend afterwards who told me this story. They said, yeah, we're really worried about everyone and Lydia's body is in really bad shape, but she'll be fine. (laughs) And the funny thing was, I actually, I said this, I said this in the last chapter of my second book, which comes out in March, but it was, it ended up being the last chapter because even though it was five weeks after when I wrote it and I cried the entire time that I was writing it, the message of that last chapter, it was that I always knew that I was going to be fine because I've been tenacious and I knew no matter what the recovery looked like, I would fight through it to get back to as close to normal as I will ever be, which I think is pretty much now, you know, it's not hundred percent, but it's close. And you just always have to look at life as an opportunity to rebound. There are things that are thrown at you. Life is not linear. It is not fair. It's fair for some ways in some ways and not in others. So I just don't believe that by sitting down and just allowing things to wash over you, that you're going to be able to live the life you really want. I think you have to go after things and and be okay with the fact that they're not going to always work out and be okay if you get knocked down physically or emotionally, Um, but always believe in yourself. And that's, in my opinion, what tenacity is about, the belief that you can get up and, and try harder the next time or try again, if nothing else. Right. How has your mindset evolved, say, over the last 10 years? I believe in myself more than ever. There's a woman I heard speak, this incredible woman named Carla Harris, who, when I heard her speak, I was speaking before her at a conference and it was one of my first speaking opportunities. And she was so amazing. I can't even tell you, I finished, I got off stage and she got on and I thought to myself, God, I can't even believe they let me on the same stage with this woman. She was so amazing. But she said something that I've never forgotten. And I love to share this story, even though it's not mine, but she said, Perception is the co-pilot of reality, which essentially means that you, you create the narrative around who people think you are. So in my case, when I was writing a book called The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You, when I first named the book and sold the book, 
I would tell people, they would say, well, what's the name of the book? And I would say, the most powerful woman in the room is you. And I almost had to cringe when I said it because it sounded so obnoxious. <laughs> like the most powerful woman in the room is you. It just sounded so big. And I remember there was one man when I told him, he went, whew, that is a title. <laughs> and I was so embarrassed, you know, oh my God. I, you know, I'm Southern. I'm not supposed to write books called The Most Powerful Woman in the Room. But then I realized, and to Carla's point about perception being the co-pilot of reality, that people believed that I was powerful because I had written a book called The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You. And I always felt powerful on stage, but sometimes off stage I didn't feel that powerful. But over the course of the past four years, throughout publishing the book and then the book tour and being on these podcasts and speaking, I mean, everything that I've ever believed about power, it's become mine. Because that's those are the words that I put out into the world about myself. And what I like to say to women, what are the words you're using to describe yourself? You know, in the story that Carla tells, she tells the story of being next to the CEO's office and people would come and throw presentations on her desk. And she was like, this is terrible. Like I could have done a better job or I could have at least given you some guidance, but they would give the tour so quickly before the meeting, she didn't have time. And she finally said to someone, you know, I would look through this, but you haven't given me enough time. And I'm sharp as nails. And I am so detail oriented. And she said, weeks later, a different person in the firm came up to her and said, you know, Carla, I know you're really detail oriented and you're really, really sharp as nails or something. I'm sort of like trying to remember exactly what she said, but the bottom line was somebody else had heard the words she said about herself right. and said them back to her. And that was what power became in my life. You know, if there was a conference where they had a powerful woman, I was on that short list. And if there was a conference where they had a powerful woman panel and I wasn't on it. People were calling me, asking me, oh my God, Lydia, they had a powerful woman pa panel and you were not on it. What, you know, what happened? It's like, there are many women who are powerful. I'm not the only powerful woman. I just wrote the book with the word powerful on it. And I think with Claim Your Confidence, my second book, you know, I am confident, but am I confident all the time? No, of course not. Nobody's the same all the time. Nobody feels confident all the time. But I will be completely confident by the time I finish this book tour, I think, because <laughs> I have a book called Claim Your Confidence. So how could I be anything but? Well, my how I came upon your book is I have a coach as well. I have spent the last 20 years in the healthcare industry and in the C-suite of healthcare and uh, made a leap, gosh, three-ish months ago to branch out on my own and do consulting and coaching and speaking. And I was in a little bit, you know, you're in kind of one of those modes where you're trying to reframe looking through a lens of corporate for 20 years to then being an entrepreneur, which is you have to look through a very different lens. And so I was like, I was struggling a bit to go in between the two. And she said, Sunny, she knows me well. She says, Sunny, I want you to go go get this book and I want you to read this book and and then let's chat about it. And so the next week I get on the uh, call with her and and I'm like excited about it. <laughs> and she goes, I knew this book was for you. <laughs> but what it did for me personally was it reconnected me with that with that power if you will of I built this business at the crossroad of what I excel at and what I'm passionate about. And when I can take those two things and light the fire under it and that fuel of wanting to have the power in a way that is different than like wielding the power, right? I want mm -hmm. to feel powerful in my own story. And what, what that has done is that's really reignited something in me that was kind of stuck in this transition. And so personally, I just want to tell you how much I appreciate it, how much I connected with it. I think so many people who, whether they haven't heard of it, um, I'm going to be blasting it out there because it is a truly phenomenal book, but it's the way that you tell it is so, it's so personal. And like I said, I'm that visual reader where I can, it's almost like a movie. And so it was so delightful to watch this movie in my mind as I was reading the book to have it all come out the way that it did. And for you to talk about the ups and the downs, for you to talk authentically about the times when, you know, goofy things happened as they always do. And you would talk each time about I could I could probably wanted to crawl under a table right yes. but you just, just keep going <laughs> yes yeah. yes it's and funny so when, no it's I was gonna say it's funny because when the book came out I thought that the book was really going to be geared towards 
women in their 20s who were graduating from college because I remember moving to New York and thinking, I wish somebody had prepared me for life after college. I've left this sort of insular place where I see my friends all the time and I live in a city now and I don't know anyone. <laughs> I'm so lonely and I just really would like to cry all the time <laughs> or go to work because at least there are people I can talk to at work and otherwise I'm in the city of 8 million people and nobody talks to me. And that was really why I wrote the book. And one of the first book events that I did was for a small group of women from a financial firm. And some of them were in their 50s, 60s, and then some were younger and they asked me to just read an excerpt. And I read, I read the negotiator that you are when you negotiate chapter about negotiating for money and being told that, you know, I was, I should be thankful for my job. And I remember looking up after I finished just reading a couple of pages and there was a woman in her sixties who was crying in the front row. And I thought, Oh God, I think that she hates my book. That was my first thought. Oh gosh. <laughs> And I sort of finished and, you know, I, I walked by her and she grabbed my arm and she said, I don't think you realize how many times I heard that over the course of my career. Mm. And to know that you were strong enough to write in a book while you're still working at the company, that really gives me hope for future generations, that somebody's okay writing it and saying it. And I think the power comes when we feel like we have a voice to say the things that we see around us and we're unafraid, right. whether that's good or bad. And again, in our own voice, and, and for me, that's never in a negative way because that's not really the way that I see life, but rather just to, to show people that everybody goes through stuff, good and bad. We have those moments in our job and on stage where things are so amazing. And I have that moment with Matt Damon. And the next night I go and take an auction thinking everybody will know how great I am because I had this sparring moment with Matt Damon. And then people talk the whole time and I crawl home. <laughs> and that for me was always charity auctioneering. It was, it was really a, just a constant battering of the ego. And then that one night that made it all worth it. And that's what I wanted to bring to the book because that's what life is. A lot of times it's getting battered and sort of hit around by different feelings or people or things that we didn't expect. And then something goes well and we're reminded of our power and sort of coming back to that time and time again, and really believing that we're the only one who can bring ourselves back to that is the life lesson. Yeah. It's, there are so many lessons to it that I think serve the spectrum right? Your intention may have felt like, oh, this will really serve people coming out of college. I mm -hmm. think about my audience is probably made up of mostly senior and executive level women who I think, holy cow, they're going to resonate with this so deeply. And so it's funny because I really do think no matter where you are in your career, it could, could definitely serve you to know a lot of, and have a lot of this wisdom on the front end of it, but man, it could really serve you as you're going along in it as well. And so I think it's a, it's really a book meant for any woman, you know, yeah. it could really that, that serve was the greatest gift for me to realize that. Because again, when you write a book, you put it out into the world and it's kind of like, you know, people say, do you, do you read book reviews? I never read book reviews because at the end of the day, the book's written. I can't change yeah. it. So right. you like it or you don't like it. It is what it is. <laughs> and I do truly believe that that is the greatest gift as an author to understand that it does reach people and it does touch people and people read things or hear on the audio version something that resonates with them at that moment in life. And they can pick it up two years later when they're needing a kick in the pants and they read it again and they think, God, I didn't even realize that I needed to hear that about networking at this particular right. moment in my life or negotiation or selling as myself. And so thank you for telling me that because that really, that is as an author, it really just makes you so excited and happy to hear. Well, you talk so much about how important, the importance, the real importance of networking it, at any stage of your career, but really taking the opportunity to meet those around you, to introduce yourself. And you developed something probably relatively far along in your career with a kind of somebody who was a competitor of yours. You guys cre ended up creating, it's this beautiful story, but you end up creating this networking breakfast for women, really with that heart of like servantship and networking and, and how do we make this uh, uh, a meal, you know, we'll, we'll frame it around a meal, a meal where people can come and get so much out of it, but really network. What was the, what was really the most meaningful part of that networking breakfast phenomenon that you created? It's been such a joy in my life. And it's interesting that you even bring that up now because we just did our first in-person post-COVID. And during COVID, 
I mean, during COVID, before COVID and the years that we did this network working breakfast, it started off with, you know, Courtney and I both brought five people that we didn't know to the breakfast. And we just sort of said, what's everyone working on? And that was the question. And then it ended up being an hours long breakfast that people wanted us to have time and time again. So we just kept doing it. And post COVID, we used to do it around one table at a restaurant. And then it grew to the sort of 20, it would be 20 people. We just did our first one post COVID. There were 30 people who showed up and it was, we couldn't even do it at a table. We ended up doing it at a, at a club here in the city. And it's just been this amazing moment once, twice, three, four, five, six times a year, however many times we choose to do it, of people getting together and just talking about where they are in their life. And that doesn't just have to be career. That can be family. It can be, you know, as I said, I'm in my early forties. There's a lot of stuff going on now. I have friends with very little children. I have friends with growing children that are going to college. I have, everyone has parents that are getting older by the day. And that's something that none of, none of us talked about when we were 32. That wasn't something that was quite the source of conversation the way it is now about being part of the sandwich generation. So it's a support network. It's a friendship network, and it's the ability to meet other people through other people's network and always have people helping you out just because they know what you're doing. And that is the most incredible thing about networking that people just do not seem to grasp that if people understand what you are doing in your life at any point, whatever you're doing, I'm publishing a book, I'm doing a speech, I'm looking to develop this, they are going to tap into their own network to help you. And if you meet people and you're doing that for them over the course of your life, you may meet them again 10 years down the road, and they're still going to be there willing to help because you've done that for them. And that's the thing with networking. It should never be that you're going in because you need something from someone. You're going in to learn about someone's life, to be part of their life journey. And when you look at networking through that lens, it becomes incredibly fulfilling and very fun. That's amazing. Well, I've loved that. And I know people have those type of networking events, but I think those are things that we should do, especially as women and in forming network and community, we should do more often. We should be more intentional about. And so it spurred a few ideas in my mind uh, as I've had this transition. Typically, I was on a plane somewhere in the country every week, whereas now I'm here local pretty regularly, unless I'm traveling to speak or something. And and so I thought, you know, I really need to rebuild that network and re-engage with my own community because I've been on planes for so many years. And so it started to spur some ideas around doing something here locally. You've built this incredible brand. You know, you had this incredible career. You're still an ambassador at Christie's. You've now built this brand. You've already published your first book in 2019, second one coming in next year. What, what does that next chapter for Lydia look like? Ooh, so many things. <laughs> Beauty of of not being full time in at Christie's anymore and only being an auctioneer for them, which is really kind of a night. That's the second part of my life. I have my day job and my night job, but um, is that it's given me so much time. So I have a podcast that's going to be coming out this fall oh, called Claim Your Confidence, which I'm really excited about, which will really talk with w- women at the top of their game and talk about their confidence journey, which is something that a lot of people look at people at the top and think that they just made it there by chance. So I want to get into the story and understand how they made it to where they are and what other people can learn from those mishaps, which is frankly, in my opinion, where confidence comes from. Right. Um, so I have that coming. I sold my first book to Netflix. So that should be something that we'll be developing over the course of the next year, which is also very exciting. And one of the other things that I've been thinking around, I haven't fully developed this, but I'll put it out there just because it's a good way to paint myself into a corner, is starting what I do for the auctioneers when I teach them at Christie's, which is starting an auctioneering school, but really have it for public speaking. So using the skills that over the past really 10 years of teaching the auctioneers at Christie's, I've learned so much about public speaking and obviously having been on over a thousand stages in my life, I know a lot from that side as well. But taking it to to executives around the country and teaching them how to be better public speakers so that we never have to sit through one of those speeches where everyone's like, God, why didn't that person go to a public speaking class? They're the CEO of a company. They're you know, launching a they're launching a brand. There's a better way to do this. So it's a passion of mine and it's something that I've been thinking about a lot. So hopefully by the next time I, I talk to you, Sunny, I'll have a, a completely different uh, auction school business going. That's very exciting. Well, that is a that's a foundational skill for any leader, really, whether you're speaking to your team or whether you're speaking to your company of 50,000 people. That is a foundational skill that so many people, I think, get tripped up in the fear around it, that they let 
themselves succumb to that fear. And you talk multiple times throughout the book around people's voice trembling and cracking and how painful it is. And or somebody's mic doesn't work or somebody's, uh, you know, notes aren't there. Something happens and people can't quickly kind of jump to just being able to navigate your way through it, like from a human perspective. And I think that's a piece. So I am really excited to see where that goes. I think there are a ton of people that could benefit from that. Well, hopefully so. so. Uh, Thank you so much for your time. This has been such an awesome almost hour. It feels like the time just flew by. I would love for everybody to know where they can find you, where they can connect with you, whether it be social media or website. And I will link everything to the book and your website in the show notes as well. But if you would please share that. Yeah. So I'm very active on Instagram, which is at Lydia Finette, which um, I know belies my age, but I can't quite seem to make the crossover to TikTok. So just find me on Instagram if need be. Um, and then I'm Lydia Finette on LinkedIn as well, if there's anything business related. And then I have a website, which is LydiaFinette.com. Um, I'm lucky in the fact that I have the only Lydia Finette name right now. So I can get all of my, all of my domain names and everything. So yeah, just Google me, find me, feel free to, as, as you know, Sunny, Sunny came to me over LinkedIn. So feel free to link in, feel free to DM. I do all of my own social. So always happy to be connected. And as I say in the book, network or die. So please reach out. Right. There we go. Very good. And make sure to go out. I will, uh, you can get it on the website as well, but I will link, make sure, make sure, make sure you either go out and get the book or get the audio book of the most powerful woman in the room is you. It is one of those books that will light a fire under you, but not one of those short-term fires. It will light the fire to really help you get clear and get your momentum going. Well, well worth it. Lydia, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, thank you so much, Sunny. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for listening and for being here. I hope you'll stick around. If you liked this episode, please take a minute and rate and review the podcast or share it with someone who you know may need to hear this message. I love to hear from you all, and I want you to know that you can leave me a voicemail directly. If you go to my website, evokegreatness.com, and go to the Contact Me tab, you'll just hit that big old orange button and record your message. I love the feedback and comments that I've been getting, so please keep them coming. I'll leave you with the wise words of Dwayne Johnson. Success is not always about greatness. It's about consistency. Consistent hard work leads to success. Greatness will come. <laughs>